When Dave Chappelle started meeting with Touchstone and Fox Network to exchange ideas he had for the show that would eventually become Chappelle's show, he began to hear buzzwords that concerned him. He kept hearing these executives talk about universal appeal and diverse draw. These terms were, of course, politically correct ways for the executives to tell Chappelle that they wanted to include more white cast members in his show. Now, in his experience, there were no white people at his first performance at the Apollo Theater, so why should they be in the pilot episode? He did not want to whitewash his show, even if it meant that it would be more difficult for the show to get picked up by a network. In the end, the executives and Dave were unable to reach an agreement about casting for the show. The next day, as he traveled back to his home in Ohio to visit his ailing father, he noticed a Variety magazine cover that called him out for having played the race card in order to try to get his way. He then responded to these accusations, saying, They fly me out here for a creative meeting. I'm in a room full of white people, and they proceed to tell me why we need more white people on the show so it can have a more universal appeal. Not discouraged, he would find a network that, at least to begin with, seemed to understand his vision and what he stood for. It would be the start of one of the greatest comedy series ever. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, comedians, and the importance of following your heart. I am your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and on this episode, we explore comedian Dave Chappelle and the phenomenon that was Chappelle Show, Chappelle Show. famous today. People like me today. Might not like me tomorrow. Can't count on it. End quote. By the time he entered Hollywood, he had spent years watching other influential black comedians such as Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. He spent hours in front of the mirror with a candle in his hand, practicing he saw their comedic brilliance and their incorporation of social commentary as a cornerstone of their artistic voices. This profoundly influenced his determination to explore the absurdity of the culture of racism in America through his comedy. By 2003, Dave and Comedy Central had worked out a deal and began production on the first season of Chappelle's show. Finally, he had a platform that granted an unprecedented level of creative control, and he had big plans for his show. Now, working with Neil Brennan, whom Chappelle had created the very successful stoner movie Half-Baked With, and Paul Mooney, whom he greatly admired, he aspired to create a show where they were free. They could tell shit jokes as well as make serious social commentary. With a combination of over-the-top hilarity accompanied by racial humor that attacked the deep-rooted seeds of racism corrupting American society, the sketches in the first season did exactly as he had hoped. Between the sketches, Ask a Black Dude, in which strangers on the street could ask Paul Mooney about any black stereotype they wanted, frontline Clayton Bixby, the story of the blind white supremacist that was unaware that he himself 
was black. To the sketch in which black people were paid reparations for slavery, Chappelle's show undermined racist institutional formations. It seemed to be the breath of fresh air that audiences had been waiting for because the show became a major hit. And the viewership which followed, as well as the DVD sales, would be groundbreaking. After the completion of the first season, he felt he wasn't earning a proportionate piece of the pie in relation to what the network was earning, but being relatively fresh to the game and with unpleasant negotiations taking place, he ultimately settled for less money than he initially wanted. Things would unfortunately become even more uncomfortable at the start of season two when he began to notice additional changes. It became quite clear that the network was trying to take more creative control of the show and began giving him more notes regarding which jokes they thought should be cut and which ones should be used. In a later interview, Chappelle said, I felt in a lot of instances that I was deliberately being put through stress because when you're a guy who generates money, people have a vested interest in controlling you. A considerable amount of the notes from the executives were encouraging him to move away from his critiques of American culture and were instead pushing to have his jokes appeal to a wider audience. That second season began to take a heavy toll on him, and as it unfolded, he found himself fatigued and overworked. The continuous push by the network to change his comedic style to improve ratings started to wear him down. Now, despite the stresses flaring up behind the curtains, the Chappelle Show audience grew to record highs by the end of that season. The show had achieved greater success with respect to viewership, but to Dave, the moral standard of the show regressed. Some prime examples of the regression of his voice are clearly seen in some of the sketches later that year. For instance, in the 11th episode of season two, he featured a sketch titled in a gay world. The sketch was based on a hypothetical situation whereby all gay people in America segregated themselves into their own civilization. The sketch opens in a very similar way to that of the black, blind, white supremacist. In a fake frontline report, the sketch shows what gay America would look like. It showed what a gay DMV worker, a gay landscaper, a gay Ku Klux Klan member, and even a gay boxing match would look like. Now, in each of these situations, Chappelle plays a different stereotype, following the mold that he had set throughout the show. But this time it was different. It was different because this sketch did not critique the stereotypes that were portrayed. This time around, the sketch didn't seem interested in changing the perspective of the audience. Instead, it highlighted the notion that if gay individuals were allowed to redefine society, they would choose to be more flamboyant and society would devolve overall. In this sketch, Dave's blind spot is clearly revealed, but because of the stress, he still deemed the sketch as acceptable for broadcast. As the show wrapped up its second season, these sketches that failed to live up to his social conscience became increasingly frequent. The lures of maintaining ratings had begun to overshadow his desire for his show to have a positive impact on his audience. As he stated in his interview with Oprah, he was stressed out and facing a lot of pushback from the executives at Comedy Central. 
He had allowed his voice to falter without even realizing it, and by the end of season two, the confidence he was riding on during the first season had diminished significantly. The contrast between the Black Reparations sketch and the In a Gay World skit shows the wavering of his voice. With the second season wrapped up, he began renegotiating his contract, but this time around, he held all the cards. The show had transformed Comedy Central from the channel of South Park to the network where people went to watch great comedy television. Season 2 averaged 3.1 million viewers per episode, and when the DVD box hit the shelves, it had the largest opening sales ever with 500,000 copies sold within the first weekend. A network president, Doug Herzog, stated that there was no question about it. Chappelle's show was the hottest thing on the network. Going into season three, Dave prepared for a long renegotiation. He knew that Comedy Central couldn't afford to lose him, and because of this, his demands were not limited to a raise. He wanted a larger share of DVD sales and was looking to get Paul Mooney his own comedy show based off the show Judge Judy. Comedy Central was hoping to limit his share of DVD sales, seeing those as huge profit centers. And in regards to Mooney's own show, there were concerns about alienating fans. Now, Chappelle always believed that Paul Mooney was too black for Hollywood. Simply put, the Comedy Central executives were quite afraid of what Paul would say, a suspicion which would be proven right. Now, if you desire to learn more about the legacy of Paul Mooney and his rise in comedy, I'd advise you to listen to House of Words podcast episode number 27. Now, after an ugly renegotiation process, the new deal was announced and Dave Chappelle was about to become one of the highest paid actors in television. The comedian was set to earn a mind-blowing $50 million over two years. The contract made headlines around the world, and it appeared that the hard work he had put in was finally going to literally pay off. However, going into season three, he once again noticed a shift in the way he was being treated by network executives. After the tough negotiation, he believed that the executives wanted to make him appear weak. So as the season was delayed for a variety of reasons, a number of articles began to appear in newspapers such as the New York Post and the Pittsburgh Gazette, blaming Dave for the delay as he was allegedly, they claim, struggling with pneumonia. Simultaneously, as if orchestrated, other media outlets claimed the delay was due to writer's block. Now, he was perplexed as to why these stories were being printed considering he felt fine and had not even begun writing season three at that point. It became increasingly clear who was running things when the executives came to him and asked him if he could back up the pneumonia story. They had made up the story without his consent. Consequently, he had no desire to help them out with it. Then, while working on season three, he became exponentially more stressed than he had been before. People were trying to convince him that he was going crazy and that he should start taking antipsychotic medication. Now, having just beaten the house, using his cutting-edge social observations to become one of the most famous people on television, 
the network was trying to take away his power. It became clear to him that the network executives were simply trying to make him look like just another crazy black man that had made his way into Hollywood, but was no longer able to deal with his success. The cost of the work had begun to outweigh the rewards, which led to a shocking decision. Taking his father's advice right before the third season was set to premiere, Dave Chappelle decided to walk away, telling no one, with the exception of his brother, he just left. As word spread of his disappearance, wild rumors began to circulate, and not solely in the tabloids. They spread around the mainstream media with stories that would ultimately prove to be pure lies. News reports, similar to those Dave believed had been spread by the Comedy Central executives, began to surface. MTV reported that he was in a mental health facility while Newsweek announced that he had become addicted to crack cocaine. The exact type of racist assumptions and stereotypes that he had criticized over the duration of his show were now being applied to him. In South Africa, where he had escaped to clear his mind, he started reading these articles and wondered where the media was getting their stories. He had not spoken with any reporters, and the only person who knew what he was doing was his brother, who it should be noted was not linked to any of the stories. He felt betrayed and intentionally sabotaged. His voice, which he had carefully crafted throughout his life, had been corrupted and was no longer serving as a tool to improve social conditions. Instead, the audience was looking at him, questioning his sanity. When he finally returned home from South Africa, he decided he would take a break from public life, moving back to Ohio and spent time with his family. In February 2006, Dave Chappelle went on an interview tour to clear up the reasoning behind why he left the show and the $50 million on the table. But even after his interviews on Oprah and inside the actor's studio, he was struggling to get his message across to the public. Whenever speaking to a news outlet or a magazine, he felt there was no effort to understand him. He wanted to do his show again and was willing to consider coming back to Chappelle's show to finish the third season, but under a few conditions. He would maintain complete creative control of the product and half of the back-end profits would go to charities. Around the same time, Comedy Central had announced that they would be showing the unaired sketches from season three, also known as the lost episodes of The Chappelle Show. He firmly stated that he would not come back if these episodes were broadcast or released. In response, Comedy Central quickly discontinued promoting the lost episodes, but they eventually wound up being released anyway, with Donnell Rawlings and Charlie Murphy as the hosts. From the inception of the show all the way to season three, Dave had always been careful about the people working around him. Charlie Murphy, Paul Mooney, Donnell Rawlings, and his longtime friend and collaborator Neil Brennan were pulled in to participate because they shared similar opinions about the type of message to craft. Their diverse backgrounds but common goals created some of the most iconic sketches to appear on the show. Their ability to work in tandem brought about sketches such as Real Hollywood Stories with Charlie Murphy, The Player Haters Ball, and the race draft. However, as the show gained popularity, 
the core group was pulled apart. Now, some of the sketches created by Rawlings, Brennan, and Murphy were becoming recognized and attributed to Dave, who was gaining fame and fortune, in part due to some of their ideas. And while Chappelle had the fame and agency to pursue other opportunities, Murphy, Rawlings, and Brennan did not have that same level of independence. Their success was simply tied to the show. So justified or not, when Comedy Central made a proposal to the trio to help out with the lost episodes, Rawlings and Murphy saw an opportunity to maintain their notoriety. Since Dave had just left without communicating his intentions to the rest of the team, they were unsure of his desires moving forward. Thus, Donnell Rawlings and Charlie Murphy chose to host three episodes of The Chappelle Show, The Lost Episodes. Now, given the way he was treated when he returned from South Africa, he decided that he'd had enough of public life for a while. He felt worn out. He felt he needed time to reconstruct his own image in a way that he deemed acceptable. He simply needed a break. He longed to go back to the relationship between himself and the audience directly in front of him and therefore rejected all offers he received to appear in films and television shows for over a decade. Furthermore, he was concerned with maintaining the creative integrity he had cultivated with a multiracial but largely black collective of artists, activists, and intellectuals put on display in the musical interludes of his show and showcased through his iconic documentary, Block Party. As of late, we've seen the triumphant return of Dave Chappelle to the stage with a newfound honesty and his sharpest cutting social commentaries to date. In closing, I will leave you with one final quote from the master comedian. You've got to say yes to your destiny. Life's happening right now. Look around you. There goes some life. Come on, mama. Live. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoore Harden. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Once again, to extend credit to the main sources for the creation of this episode, we have What Are You Laughing At? The Comedy and Social Commentary of Dave Chappelle by Andrew J. Fishman and Deconstructing Chappelle's Show, Race, Masculinity, and Comedy as Resistance by Lindsay Lynn Wedderberg. Remember, laughter has the power to heal. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. 
narrated and written by me, Jason Moore Harden, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Moore Harden. 